Hi, my name's Paul Grogan. Welcome to episode 19 of the all-new Gaming Rules podcast. This podcast is an audio version of the live Q&A from April 2022 that was unfortunately delayed due to COVID and went out at the start of May 2022, but it's officially the April's live Q&A. This podcast is only made possible thanks to the financial support of my Patreon campaign. So if you enjoy listening to this podcast and you want to support the channel directly, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. And now on with the show. And I think we are live. As always with these things, please let me know if you can hear me and you can see me okay. And welcome to a slightly delayed, yeah, it's only a week late, um, April's live Q&A. So as many of you know, I've been suffering from COVID, still not fully recovered from it. So I will be muting myself now and again when I need to cough. Um, But yeah, welcome to this month's or last month's live Q&A. Also, uh, as many of you might know, I run these things with my partner Victoria who sits in the same room as me and she handles a lot of the background stuff that goes on in these live Q&As. Vicky also got Covid and her cough is actually still quite bad so she sat outside in the sun Um, so yeah she'll be administering the chat so thank you very much Um, but otherwise there'd have been the constant coughing in the background. Um, Yeah all the cool kids have (laughs) have Covid at the moment. Um, Right what we're going to do is we're going to follow the same process as I normally follow for these live Q&As in that I am going to be going through all of the questions that I've been asked in advance. Now I've been thinking about this this afternoon. So what I do is these live Q&As every month about a week before I post a thread on my BGG Guild and I ask for questions in advance and the reason why I do that is I have supporters uh, all around the world and not not all of them are able to join these live Q&As but also some of them just can't make it for whatever other reason and I feel um, that it's only the right thing to do to give these people the chance to ask questions if they can't make it to the live show. So that's why I always do this. So about a week before the live Q&As I always post a thread on my BGG Guild um, for people to ask questions in advance. Vicky's going to put a a link in the chat right now. If you're not a member of the of the guild, it's guild number 2258, uh, please sign up to the guild. There's very little traffic, so you're not going to get bombarded with notifications, but join and also subscribe because otherwise you won't see anything. So yeah, go to the link, join the guild on BGG and click the subscribe button so that you will get notifications. But anyway, I was thinking about it because it takes me a good couple of hours to sit down and go through all of those questions uh, and come up with the answers of what I'm gonna what I'm gonna say for them. And normally I will do that on a Wednesday afternoon. But obviously today, with it being a weekend, I've been sat outside for the last couple of hours, and I've been doing them. And I've sort of been thinking, am I making these live Q and A's more work than they should be? The fact that I'm spending the whole of my Saturday afternoon going through all of these questions, and would it not be better to just scrap that idea and just do a live Q&A with live questions. And I thought about it and I, and I reminded myself of what I originally said, which is I want people the opportunity to ask me questions who can't watch live. So I'm going to stick with it. Um, but yeah, it, it does take quite a long time to prepare for these live Q&A. So thank you very much to all of my patron supporters for making these possible. Uh, and obviously we normally do these during the week, uh, but delayed due to COVID um, and I, I had to schedule it in somewhere. Right, so... Let's crack on with the questions that we've been asked in advance. We'll go through all of those first. If you do have a question for me and you're watching live, please put it in the in the live chat, but start with the word question in capitals 
so that Vicky can see that and she will transfer that into the doc because I won't be able to see the chat uh, live because there's normally too much of it. So first question is from Brian who asks some personal questions and I don't mind answering personal questions. The questions that you ask me could be what's the what's my film favourite film that I've watched recently um, but it, it, it usually is game related. Anyway Brian's got some personal questions and he's asking about the wedding. So for those of you who don't know Vicky and I got engaged uh, last month. I think it was last month. Uh, I talked about it in my video log of, of last month uh, and Brian is asking when is the wedding, how big is the reception and who's going to be the best man. Now the plan was, when we got engaged, that we would get engaged so that it's done, but we wouldn't actually then start doing all of the planning, because that takes a lot of time, and neither of us had really the time to do that sort of stuff. Uh, video is a bit jerky. Okay, I'm not sure why the video is a bit jerky. Um, let's have a look. Oh yeah, the video is a bit jerky. I've noticed that. I don't know why. Um, there's nothing running on my machine that would slow it down. So uh, yeah, apologies for that. If the if the if the video quality is not great, I'm not sure why. Um, but anyway, right. However, uh, Vicky's been off in the background and doing lots of research, and we've actually booked a date for the wedding, and we've booked a venue. Um, yeah, I don't I don't I don't know why it's jerky. I'm using the same camera setup as I normally use. I'm well, in fact, I'm using the the overhead camera. Uh, the better one. So we've got a date for the wedding. It is the 4th of August 2023 and we've booked a venue and interestingly enough we did look around at a few venues uh, and the venue that we've booked is just over there. I can almost see it out of <laughs> out of the studio window. Uh, it is a place called Upton Barnes which is in Columpton and we didn't book it because it was close. We booked it because it's an amazing venue. It's really really nice so we've booked the venue. Other than that we haven't done much else. We've booked the photographer, um, but we haven't decided how big the reception's going to be. We haven't decided who's going to be there. We haven't decided on things like best man, if I'm going to have a best man. Uh, not sure yet. So yeah, watch this space for, for other things. Um, right, next question is from Deborah. Deborah has said that she's still not attended her local board gaming group because of COVID, since it is an inherently risky activity. How has COVID affected the groups that I know about? Well, the, the group that I regularly attend, my local gaming group, actually started after COVID. Because I used to run my own gaming group in Columpton, which closed because of COVID, and then I chose not to start it again. Uh, however, the Cranbrook Gaming Group started post-COVID and it, it has been affected. First of all, the initial sessions that we went to, we all uh, we, we were supposed to wear masks. The doors and windows were open, which means it got really cold. Um, but as restrictions in the UK have eased, um, it has meant that the club now doesn't have the doors and windows open and masks are not mandatory. Now, what that's done is it hasn't affected numbers at all, but it has meant that anybody... Um, going to the club, there is a risk that you've got COVID. There's, there's a risk that you might get COVID. Now, nobody has got COVID at the local club, as far as I know, um, because if anybody had symptoms, they would test beforehand uh, and they, they wouldn't go. And there's a few people, there's, there's quite a few people actually, including myself, who haven't been to the club in the last few months because they've tested positive for COVID. But otherwise, the club is now running as normal with with no restrictions. Now that's where we are in the UK. I'm aware that different places in different parts of the world uh, have got different rules and regulations. So it, it's just one of those things that we have to live with. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about COVID 
later on when I got asked about bacon because my my perception of COVID, not my perception of it, but my personal experience with COVID has sort of changed my outlook a little bit, but we'll touch on that later on. Um, so Brian has got some questions and Brian wants to know, are there any board games that I have played in the past that I miss? In other words, ones that I've sold, got rid of, and then regretted uh, and wish that I hadn't sold them. Now, I very, very rarely sell games or move them on. Uh, my games collection is too big. I, ha I have too many games. But when it comes to the point of culling games, historically, I'm really bad at culling games. I will keep games just so that they're in the collection because then they are part of the gaming rules library, which I use uh, when I go to Gridcon and things like that. So even games that I'm not particularly keen on myself, I will often keep. Now, over the last couple of years, the games have got completely out of control and they are taking over the house and there's no space for them and I'm having to move them to the garage and the attic and, and they're just absolutely everywhere. Um, and it's a problem. So I'm having to be more ruthless with games that I'm getting rid of. But yeah, I'm not one of these people who just gets rid of games and then thinks, oh, I'll, I'll get, I'll, I'll pick that up again. Thankfully, I, ha I do have the luxury that I do have space for the four or 500 games that I do have. It's about four or 500, I think. Um, but, you know, I, I'm often seeing other content creators say, oh, I got rid of this game. And somebody the other day sent me a, sent me a message, Peter from Tabletop Together. He said, uh, damn you, Grogan, you, you, you persuaded me to go and rebuy Bitoku after I'd sold it. Now, as long as he enjoys Bitoku, that's great. But I do find it unusual that somebody gets a game, plays it, doesn't like it, sells it, and then decides that, to give it another go. Yeah, now, and I can understand that, because if you don't have the luxury of space, then you do have to cull a bit more regularly than I do. Um, anyway, back to the original question, not really. There is only one game that I can think of, which is Tramways. Now, I got rid of Tramways because the rulebook was awful, the graphic design was awful, um, and even though there's probably a good game in there, I struggled with the game because of the issues with the graphic design and, and everything about it. And I've got I've got 300 games that I'd much prefer to play. So I decided that I would get rid of Tramways. But it's one of those ones that if somebody suggested playing it, and if the graphic design issues were fixed, which I don't think they are, then I'd, I'd, I'd occasionally I think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have got rid of that. But there are other games that I have that do what Tramways does better. So yeah, I don't have that much regret about it. But Brian has a very, very uh, important question on a related note. And this is about biscuits that are no longer available. Now, Brian has given me a list of biscuits which are apparently no longer available in the UK. And when I read this list, I was shocked because the list includes Caramac, Kit Kats, 54321s, Banjos and Trios. Now, first of all, um, I, I, I've never heard of Banjos. I, either I did and I don't remember them. But Caramac, Kit Kats, I love Caramac. If I'd known Caramac, Kit Kats existed, I'd be a different person today. Um, as for 54321s, I remember the advert, um, but yeah, so these, these are basically biscuits that were available, or chocolate bars that were available in the UK uh, that are no longer available. So thank you very much, Brian, for, for <laughs> reminding us of those. Um, and the final question is again related to the wedding. Will the wedding cake be a giant three-tiered Jaffa cake? Uh, and if it isn't, Brian, then there's going to be trouble. So there we go. There's questions from Brian. Right, next question from Paul Snuggs. Uh, Paul says that I'm known for being a fan of heavier weight Euro games. 
Uh, Paul's starting to enjoy them more and more, and he's keen to know what it is about these heavy Euro games that make, make me enjoy them so much. Um, and he's asked, is it the challenge? Is it multiple routes to victory? Is it the fact that they're deterministic, etc., etc.? So I've had to think about this. And first of all, on the deterministic column, um, I don't think that deterministic is a category that heavy euros fall into. There are, I think it's a separate category is what I'm saying. There are heavy euros out there, or there are heavy games out there that are not deterministic. For example, Burn Cycle, which I've played recently and covered it on the channel. There's, there's a fair amount of output randomness in Burn Cycle, but it's a heavy game. There are also other games that I've got which are lighter games, which are deterministic. Um, so I, I don't think deterministic is a characteristic of heavier Euro games. It is a characteristic of Euro games, but not necessarily heavier ones. Um, also, multiple routes to victory. I, the same the same comment on that one. I have I have light games with multiple routes to victory, and I have heavy games with only one route to victory. So again, I don't think I don't think those two categories tie up. Multiple routes to victory and heavy Euro games. I don't think there's a correlation there. But going on to the, so, so I'm, I'm trying to work out what it is that I like about these games. Now, what I will say is something that I've been saying quite a bit for the last six months in that as I get older, and I don't know if it's anything to do with age or it's just my tastes have changed, but 10 years ago, I would love the heaviest of the heavy Euros. Now, I'm going, I'm not saying I don't like the heavy Euros, but for me right now, where I am with my gaming life and gaming career and hobby and whatever else, these heavy games, some of them tend to have too much overhead. And what I mean by that is the amount of effort in terms of time and mental energy that you need to put into something to learn the game before even playing it as a ratio to how much I enjoy it. I'm finding that that ratio is, is balancing more and more towards lighter games. Now, it's not to say that I don't like heavy games anymore, but what I'm saying is that there are some really great games out there that I can get out, learn in half an hour, and play, and really enjoy it. Whereas there are some heavy Euros which might take me four hours, eight hours, maybe even longer to learn how to play the game before I then play it. Does Do I enjoy the heavier Euro more? Generally speaking, yes, but it's a case of balancing the effort versus what you get back out of it. And in terms of trying to quantify why I enjoy these heavy Euros, as I say, it isn't the fact that there's multiple routes to victory or they're deterministic. It, it's probably the challenge. It's probably the first thing you mentioned is I do enjoy the challenge of trying to put all of the pieces of this puzzle together and work it out. And if we take, for example, a game called Myabi, which is a light game that you can teach in five minutes and takes about what, 30, 40 minutes to play? Myabi came out a couple of years ago. It's from Haber, designed by uh, Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling, I think. I might be wrong on that, but I think it's Kramer and Kiesling. It's a great game. Really, really good game. But it's five minutes to teach, and it's interesting, and I enjoy it. Then, at the other end of the spectrum, we've got Perseverance, which is an hour's teach, well, maybe 45 minutes to an hour teach, and then it's a two-and-a-half-hour game. Do I enjoy Perseverance more? Yes. Do I enjoy Perseverance more because it's a heavier game? No. But there's more depth to it, if depth is the right word. Anyway, I hope that sort of answered your question a little bit, as much as I can. Right, next question is from Roger. Uh, Roger says that he notices that several of the games that I've covered recently have 
they offer different scenarios. Uh, and he's mentioned Burn Cycle being one of them. So for those people who don't know, Burn Cycle is Chip Theory Games' latest game. And it comes with multiple scenarios or missions. And whenever you play the game, you choose which mission to play. And that mission will play out quite differently from other missions because there are special rules, special objectives and everything else. Um, but he also mentions Perseverance. Now, he said Perseverance Chronicles because as far as I'm concerned, Perseverance isn't a scenario-based game. It is, you've got episode one and you've got episode two and you've got different, slightly different modes with the Chronicles, but I haven't actually touched on the Chronicles yet, but I wouldn't say Perseverance is a scenario-based game. Um, but he's basically saying, he suspects the game manufacturer is hoping that once you've played each scenario once, you're done with the game and you're off to the next one. I, I'm not sure that's that's a case. Um, certainly with Burn Cycle, once you've played a particular scenario, I would I would be more than happy to play that scenario again because with Burn Cycle, there's, a, there's actually a whole host of other factors which contribute to the uh, scenario. For example, which... Uh, bots you decide to play with will, will change the game entirely and then you have some variability in the setup so you could quite easily play the same scenario again in burn cycle and it would be very replayable the fact that there's uh, th 24 missions with burn cycle base game and an extra eight with the expansion there is more content there than, than anybody's going to need i mean how many times do you play a game right for me the average number of times that I play a game is probably two. There are some games that I've played five, six, ten times, but am I going to play Burn Cycle 32 times and play every mission once? It's unlikely, to be honest. I mean, I'd like to, but the fact that I just don't have that much time available to dedicate to one game. Now, if you're a massive Burn Cycle fan, you're probably going to try and play through every mission, and they are different. But Perseverance is, as I say, as far as I'm concerned, is, is not scenario-based. Anyway, Roger is saying that since he, he, the games that he's played since getting into the hobby, where there is one set of rules, that provides as many different scenarios as you care to play. And I'm not quite sure what he means by that, but is Burn Cycle more replayable than Perseverance? And it's actually tricky because I think both games have the same amount of replayability but you're absolutely right, 10 games into Perseverance, you will still be playing the same game. Whereas 10 games into Burn Cycle, you could say, oh, let's take that mission. And all of a sudden, the game plays out differently. So I think for me, um, and, and Roger's question is, going back to Roger's question, is he's saying, am I selecting this type of game consciously? So am I deliberately choosing games that have scenarios that are multiple ways to play it? Um, and, and the answer is, the answer is no. Um, I, I will choose to cover games like Imperial Steam, for example, no scenarios, no missions. There's the rules. Off you go. There's a variable setup, which is what you should use once you've played the game once or twice. But other than that, it's the same game every time you play. And I, I, I chose to play Imperial Steam because it's a, it's a fantastic game. So no, I'm not making a conscious decision. Uh, to play games that are more scenario-based. But also, I don't think... I mean, I might be wrong, but Roger seems to think that I'm covering a lot of games that have multiple scenarios or ways to play on the channel. I don't, I don't think I am. I think I'm just covering the games that I normally like to cover. But Roger's follow-up question is, do I think that the hobby as a whole is heading in that direction? Because um, for his part, he prefers 
simpler rules such as Concordia. And to be honest, I think the hobby is heading more in that direction because legacy and campaign games has changed the entire gaming landscape. So what we've got now is we've got a, 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 a hobby and an industry where people are shoehorning campaign modes into games that don't need campaign modes. Now, sometimes those campaign modes are really good and it's really nice that they've added them in there. But let's take Perseverance for an example. If Perseverance had have come out five or six years ago, I'm going to guess here, this is a complete guess, but I think if Perseverance had have come out five or six years ago, let's say Perseverance was Mind Clash's first game instead of Trickerian. I don't think Perseverance would have had the Chronicles mode. It would have just been, here's the game, here's episode one, here's episode two, and maybe here's a variant rule for you to change it in a slightly different way. I, I don't know. But I think the industry knows, as game publishers know, that if you add in a campaign mode, people are going to like it more. Generally speaking, people go, oh, there's a campaign mode. Oh, I'm getting more content for the same amount of money. It's not the same amount of money because they're having to pay for the extra campaign mode. But you know what I'm saying is that as a manufacturer and as a publisher of games, if you can somehow put a campaign mode into your game, then it is ticking another box. And it's, I think it's likely to sell more. Now, that's not to say that all games need it. Again, I refer back to Imperial Steam. Imperial Steam, great game from last year, no campaign mode, there's the game. I, it's, ju it's just as it is. So I think overall the hobby is heading in that direction uh, for various reasons. So there we go. Hopefully that, that's answered that question. Whew. Right, next question is from Mick. Uh, and we're going to continue Mick's regular questions about game balance. So for the last couple of Q&As, Mick has been asking various questions about game balance. And the question that he's got about game balance for this month is, what are my thoughts on game balance via social interaction? such as the alien powers in Cosmic Encounter. Now, Mick's guess is that I hate it, but he wants to know why. And you're absolutely right, Mick. I absolutely hate it. Um, now, I've got to be careful what I say here, because my personal opinion is that balancing a game, or, or sorry, leaving it down to the players to balance the game by the players themselves understanding which powers are more powerful than others and then playing differently based on that knowledge personally i think is bad game design and that is my personal opinion and that is because <sighs> so very often you play a game and you will play that game and the, the players have different powers and you play the game and Mick's playing the game and Mick's got, you know, faction Z, right? And you're all playing the game for the first time and Mick's like, oh, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that and I'm score 50 points. And we're all like, what? And then he takes another turn and he goes, I'm going to go there, go there and score 60 points. And you're like, what? So you get to the end of the game and Mick's won, right? Mick scored 500 points and everybody else has got 10. Your impressions of that game after your first game is that the game's broken, totally broken, and you'll probably never play it again. I, I personally, well, I'll go back and check the rules and I'll go, yeah, we, we played correctly. 
I don't understand this. The game can't have been playtested. That faction is totally broken and we're never going to play the game again. That's the reality of the situation and that's the situation that I've been in myself with regards to some other games. And then you go away and you read the designer's diary on BGG and he says, oh yeah, Faction Z is totally and utterly broken. That's down to the players to work out that it's broken and they all have to change their playstyle accordingly to make sure that that player can't get away with it. No, I, no. As I say, as far as I'm concerned, personal opinion, that's bad game design. I don't like that in a game. There's various reasons why, but one of the reasons why is your first impression of a game is important. And a lot of people these days, with so many games coming out, aren't going to give a game a second chance. So if you inherently design a game which potentially is imbalanced because of the player powers, and you're just going to rely on the players working that out themselves and playing accordingly, I'm afraid that game is not going to get past the first play in my group. Anyway, that's, that's my personal opinion on it. Um, yeah, and also the whole social interaction in games makes me really uncomfortable. Now, I've spoken about this before on the channel, but there is nothing worse for me than being part of a, a board game, which is supposed to be an enjoyable experience where I'm enjoying myself and I'm playing, and there is another player going, you want to attack Paul? Paul's getting 10 points a turn. You want to attack him? Go, go and attack him. Go and do that. Oh, don't attack me. No, I'm, I'm just a weak little thing. Don't worry about me. You want to go and attack Paul? Look at that. He's getting 10 points a turn. And the other player goes, oh yeah, Paul's getting 10 points a turn. I'll attack him. And what happens is the player over there that was persuading him to attack me wins the game. And it's like, oh, so you were doing that deliberately to try and persuade them to attack me to divert attention from you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, now, that, that's part of a game, but I, I hate games with diplomacy, with negotiation, with players trash-talking each other, uh, that sort of stuff. It just makes me really uncomfortable, because ultimately people are lying. People are lying, they're bluffing, and I don't like that in board games. I just want to place my worker on a space, get the two wood, convert the two wood into a table, and sell the table at the market and get five gold. That's what I want. I don't want that whole social dimension of board games. Not for me. Not for me. Right. Next question from Mick is one I'm not going to be able to answer. He says, if I could choose one lifestyle game to keep playing, such as Too Many Bones or Arkham Horror or any others, which one would it be and why? And I say I'm not going to be able to answer this question because just taking the two games that you've said there, Too Many Bones and Arkham Horror LCG. I love both of those games. If you're asking me to choose between those two games, but also let's put some other ones in. Let's put in uh, Android Netrunner, which potentially is a lifestyle game. In fact, any LCG is a lifestyle game. Let's put in Gloomhaven. Let's put in uh, Cloudspire. Let's put in Burn Cycle. Let, let's put in all of these games which take can take over your life and require a lot of time and effort and repeated plays. If I could choose which one of them to keep, which one would it be and why? I don't think I can. And if we focus on Too Many Bones and the Arkham Horror LCG, for example, I love both of them for different reasons. And I, I, I really can't choose between them. Um, I'm sorry, I, I can't answer that question. Um, I mean, it's great the fact that we've got, we've got these games, but both of those games scratch a different itch for me. Too Many Bones and the Arkham Horror LCG. Although they're both cooperative and they're both quite involved and they're both detailed uh, and the Arkham Horror LCG is a campaign system played over several uh, several sessions whereas Too Many Bones is 
play it all in one, unless you play the campaign. Um, yeah, I can't answer that. I really can't. Final question for Mick, I think, is for games that have multiple personas in the game, such as the spirits in Spirit Island, the mages in Aeon's End, and the gearlocks in Too Many Bones, do I prefer to play one persona multiple times, uh, or do I prefer to play different ones each time? Um, because Mick remembers that in one of the Too Many Bones videos that I did, I said that I was going to stick to one gearlock and play it until I knew it. Um, and you're right, Mick, but my it, it really depends on the game. So if we take, for example, the three that you've mentioned, we have on one end of the spectrum, we have Aeon's End. Aeon's End has different characters with different abilities, but those abilities are so easy to learn and they're so small that I would be happy playing 10 games of Aeon's End with 10 different mages. But if we were to take Too Many Bones and you made me play 10 games of Too Many Bones with 10 different gear locks, my brain would explode because the amount of uh, effort that you need to put into learning how one gear lock works is 20 times that of Aeon's End. So Aeon's End is basically, here's your special card, what does this do? And here's your special power. Done. That's it. Whereas Too Many Bones is you've really got to play a character once, two, three times before you even get to know how it works. So yeah, my answer is it, it depends on the game. Right, next question from Avron. Um, he's asking about online board gaming websites. He specifically mentions Yukata, but the sites that I use for playing online website, uh, online games are Yukata, uh, Boitageur, um, and Board Game Arena. And he's asking, what are the main factors in choosing which site to use? Is it the specific games available? Is it the friends already using it? Is it the user base, the interface, etc., etc.? For me, it's a combination of uh, the specific games that are available and the interface. So there are certain games which are available online which I refuse to play because the interface is painful for me to use. Um, and when I say painful for me to use, I mean a game where you can click something and there's no undo button. For example, I'm playing a game of Kalos right now on Board Game Arena. The original version of Kalos, not 1303, and I'm playing a game of it online with Adam and Jill uh, asynchronously and I'm never going to play Kalos again on Board Game Arena because there's no undo feature and I accidentally clicked something the other day and suddenly it had moved on and the game had and that's it my entire game is ruined because of one misclick. Now if this was a physical board game that wouldn't happen you'd go uh, I'm going to put that no I'm going to put it there you know and in that case it, it, it was just a misclick um, so my entire game is ruined Weeks of time playing this game has been ruined because of a misclick and there's no undo feature. So, yeah, for me, it's down to a combination of, um, yeah, the interface on the website and, yeah, the games that are available. Next question uh, from Ray. So this, this is a good one. Um, no, in fact, Ray's got a couple of questions. Um, first question is... What do I think board game companies could do to make board games more sustainable? Less plastic, please, less plastic. One thing that is really bothering me right now, and I'm sad to say that some of my favourite publishers are still doing this, and it's really bothering me, but games that they get made in China, they arrive, and the punch boards are wrapped in plastic. Brilliant. And then there's a pack of cards wrapped in plastic. Not, not Ziploc bags but actual single-use plastic, which you have to take off. Now, that's part of the manufacturing process, and it just, it bothers me. 
it, it bothers me. And I've spoken to them about it and they say, yes, Paul, we're looking at reducing the plastic. And then the next game arrives and everything's covered in plastic again. So, yeah, th things covered in single-use plastic, that bothers me. Um, thankfully, our local Tesco are now recycling single-use plastic, but still, it, it's a problem. The other thing is actually a much bigger problem, and that is plastic and miniatures. And it's the way that the gaming hobby has been going, thanks to Kickstarter and everything else, but games are getting bigger and more and more expensive. And they are coming with a whole ton of miniatures and a whole ton of add-ons and a whole ton of extra stuff and everything else. And I don't know whether that's good for the hobby. Um, I, it's just where it is. I, you know, there's no way that I can change it, but that's just that's just where we are right now. We are having, you know, Kickstarters going on every week. There is another Kickstarter where it costs you got four hundred dollars to buy a game. You know, twenty years ago when I went to Essen, you'd go and buy a game and it'd be 45, 40 euros, maybe even thirty-five euros, and you'd you'd go to Essen and you'd see a game and you'd buy a game and you'd you'd take it home and then maybe two years later an expansion set would come out. The entire gaming industry has changed in the last 20 years. Now it's all, here's a new Kickstarter, $500 or $300 or whatever. It's crazy what's happened to the gaming industry. Now I'm not saying that these games are not good because recently I've got Perseverance, massive bulk game, loads of plastic miniatures, great, looks fantastic. It's just, it's weird how the gaming industry is and the hobby has changed. Um, but yeah, yeah, less less single-use plastic, please. Next question from Ray is, how many Easter eggs did I get? One, it is downstairs, it's not been eaten yet. I'm not a bit, I, I don't eat much chocolate. I don't eat much sweet things, so it's still downstairs. Um, and obviously having COVID recently meant that I, I kind of not got around to eating it, but I will, I will start to eat it at some point. Uh, what was my favourite game at Bacon? So Bacon is a UK convention that I went to a few weeks ago where I got COVID. Uh, my favourite game that I played at Bacon was probably Bitoku, but that's because Bitoku is my favourite game of last year. Um, the late night letter jam game that we played on Friday night was possibly the best game of letter jam that I've ever played. Now I've played letter jam a lot and I've demoed it over 200 times, but that game of letter jam that we played on the Friday evening of Bacon was letter jam extreme it was something else it was really really good um and what's my next board game convention is uk games expo which i'll be talking about uh, later on so yeah i'll be going to uk games expo in three weeks time i think um so the question from ray is has getting covid influenced my views on going to conventions especially given that i'm self-employed so yes and no now the reality is that me getting COVID, me getting COVID has actually, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm technically not self-employed. Technically, Gaming Rules is a company, and I am the director of that company. So legally, it's not self-employed. But I know what you mean. I have lost so much uh, money from work that I've been unable to do due to COVID. Um, but. I am now having to catch up. So I've not lost the money, but what I'm saying is I've lost the time. Now, sometimes, very, very rarely, I kind of remember back to those times when I had a full-time job. And if I was sick, then I would call in sick and I would be off work. And you go back to work and you might have a little bit of catching up to do. But generally speaking, anything urgent that you needed to do 
or the general day-to-day -day running of the work would happen without you. In my line of work, as anybody knows who works for themselves, is every hour that I'm unable to work is an extra hour that I need to do somewhere else. So now that I'm starting to recover from COVID, I'm now overwhelmed by the amount of work that I need to get done, which is why I'm doing this Q&A, which is why I've spent the whole of this afternoon preparing for this Q&A, and I'm doing this Q&A now. I'm also having to work tonight on a rule book project that I've been working on, and I will be working tomorrow night as well. Now, I don't want to work weekends, but I'm having to because I've got a backlog. But going back to Ray's question, has getting COVID influenced my views on going to conventions? So when I went to Bacon, I knew that going to Bacon was probably the riskiest thing that I've done since the COVID pandemic started. Because I'm going somewhere for three or four days and I'm going to be in a room with other people for 16 hours a day and the chance of me getting COVID is much higher than if I stayed at home and watched TV. And I knew that going to, K going to Bacon and I accepted that risk. Now, unfortunately, Bacon turned out to be a super spreader event. Somebody obviously had COVID at the start of the event and presumably didn't know it. Uh, and spread it to everybody else. And almost everybody that I know who went to Bacon who hasn't already had COVID came away with COVID. Uh, and we're all just starting to recover slowly from it. Now, that has sort of made my feelings on UK Games Expo different. I am going to be going to UK Games Expo in three weeks' time. But I am pretty sure that UK Games Expo is going to be a super spreader event, just like Bacon. Because for three days, there's going to be thousands of people all in close proximity to each other. Now, do I feel that going to UK Games Expo is risky for me? No, because I've just had COVID. So hopefully, I'm not going to get it again in such a short space of time. But anybody who is going to UK Games Expo needs to be prepared that you might get COVID. Then again, you might get COVID just from getting on the bus or going to a restaurant, or doing anything else. You know, a lot of people right now are going out, going to cinemas, going to the pub, all of that sort of thing. Um, so it, it hasn't changed my perception on it, but obviously having it has sort of made me feel a little differently about it. Um, and yeah, it's not going to stop me going to future conventions, and I'm actually glad that I got COVID at Bacon, because hopefully that means I won't get it at UK Games Expo. Hopefully. Cross fingers. Next question is from Phil. How long does it take me to paint an average to size miniature? Now, I, th I think Phil's asking me this because he knows that I get upset about it. <laughs> um, so I paint. Oh, Phil's question is, he says he's just wondering, as it seems to take his number two son about a week to get a 40k orc trooper painted bit by bit. Now, I paint miniatures. I paint quite a bit of miniatures. Uh, I have been painting miniatures for the last 35 years. Um, not constantly. I, I did have quite a big break, but for the last three or four years, I've been painting quite a lot. And I paint slowly. And that is because I am a bit of a perfectionist and not in a good way. I would love to be able to speed paint miniatures and accept the fact that they look good enough to be on the table. And I can't. I can't bring myself to it because part of being a perfectionist, the, the bad side of being a perfectionist is you look at something and you think, 
Well, that's perfectly good enough for normal people. But if I just spend another two or three hours on it, I could make it look better. And then I'd be happier. Now, why is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing because I am spending anywhere from four to six hours painting a miniature for a game that I might never use. And that is where, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I've spent a week painting four miniatures from Batman Gotham City Chronicles, which I might never use in the game because the game comes with multiple scenarios. Um, and that's where I'm sort of agonizing in my brain. I'm like, look at these. I've painted these. These look great. I'm really happy with these. And then on the, on the flip side, I'm going, but I've got all of those miniatures there from Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-earth, which I can't play until I've painted it. And I'm spending my time painting these miniatures for a game, for a scenario that I might never play. Anyway, what I've done, Phil, just for you, is I've set up the side camera and I've got some miniatures here. Let me just click on this button here. This is the new side camera. Okay, this isn't a still image. This is the side camera. Um, so again, thank you very much to all my Patreon supporters for your financial support because that allows me to buy all these new toys. Here are four miniatures from Batman Gotham City Chronicles. And the reason why I'm showing you these miniatures is this one. This is a prisoner. Okay, let's just get this here. Um, and this was relatively quick to paint. This probably took me about two and a half hours for this, for this miniature. And that, as you can probably tell, is because it's mostly orange which was an, uh, it was a base coat of orange with a thinned down orange contrast paint. So I'm, I'm not using contrast paints the way they should be used. I'm using contrast paints um, mainly as a wash. So the orange on this was relatively quick to do. That is just, then, then there's the flesh, which again is a flesh wash. Uh, the face took me quite a while to do. I don't think I've done the eyes. Did I do the eyes? No, I've not done the eyes. But I did the teeth and I did the moustache. Then I did the then I did the boots, then I did the base. So that was probably about two to two and a half hours. Okay? Then we look at the guards. Now these guards, these are the ones that I might never use in a game because these are only in two particular scenarios. Um, and I've spent absolutely ages on these. Each one of these probably took me, and there's there's eight of them, each one of these probably took me about six to eight hours because I did shading, I did highlighting, I did edge highlighting, I did a lot of stuff on this, to the point where I spent ages experimenting on this helmet. And if you look closely, I've actually varnished the miniature in matte, matte varnish, except for the helmet. The helmet has been uh, gloss varnished because I wanted it shiny. So I've actually got four of these, and I've got four of these, uh, and if you look closely, I mean, you can see the detail on them, but I'm really happy with that. Then, just move these to one side, you've got Bane. So I was really happy with this miniature. This, this for me, I was very, very happy with it, how this came out with the shading, the flesh and everything else. And again, the detail on the back. And again, I've done the gloss varnish on the pipes because I wanted them to look uh, like they had liquid in them. But I'm really happy with how this came out. How long did this miniature take? This miniature alone probably took me eight hours, maybe a bit more. So yeah, for me, I spend a lot longer on painting miniatures than I would like to. But ultimately, I paint because I enjoy the end result. And I look at these miniatures now and I am proud. I am happy uh, and I am proud of them and I'm really pleased with them. 
the fact that I've got another 80 to do, and I know that it's going to take me another year to do them for a game that I hardly play. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. So it takes me a long time to paint miniatures. But when I, you know, I, I'm envious of other people. There are other people out there who can paint to the same quality that I can in about a third of the time. And envy is the wrong word. And jealousy is the wrong word. I, I, I really do wish that I could do that, but I just can't. It's just, it's just one of those things. Um, anyway, there we go. Next question from Paul Snugs. Now, this is a really interesting question, this. Um, this is so interesting. You know, I mentioned the Guild earlier on. We've actually got this as a question on the Guild. So if you've got an answer to this next question, then pop on over to the Guild, Guild number 2258 on BGG, and you can add your thoughts. There's already a big discussion on there, uh, and you can add your thoughts to it. And Paul is asking about train games. What exactly is a train game? This is one of those nebulous things that no longer has any real meaning. In that everybody has their own opinion on what is a train game. And that discussion thread on BGG is actually really interesting. Because I have my own thoughts on what a train game is. Um, but reading the thread on BGG... Um, and getting lots of other people's opinions on what a train game was, I found really fascinating. So if you have your own thoughts on what a train game is, or you just want to read the, the discussion thread on BGG, then head on over to the Guild, and a couple of weeks ago, Paul asked the question, and there's loads of comments on there. So, for me, a train game has to be one which is thematically tied to trains, where you are probably building routes maybe moving cubes around on that route or something like that. So Age of Steam is a train game for me. Railroad, uh, not Railroad, uh, what's it called? Russian Railway, Russian Railroads. Russian Railroads is a train-themed game. I don't class Russian Railroads as a train game, which is really unusual because it, the theme of the game is trains, but I don't personally class it as a train game because... The, me the mechanisms of the game are, it's worker placement, putting stuff on your board, moving things along, getting bonuses, it's a standard Euro game. It happens to be themed around building railway routes, but there are no mechanisms in the game that are thematically tied to the building of routes. Now, traditionally, a lot of train games tended to be about operating companies with shares, like 18xx games, but that, that's not the case anymore. So, it, it's a really interesting question. And as I say, I would recommend heading over to the over to the guild. If somebody wants to put a, a, a link in the chat right now for the, for that particular thread on the guild, um, then yeah, head on over. Next question is from Rob. Now, last month he asked a question about a club sandwich, and I wasn't able to answer it um, because I didn't really fully understand it. But he's sticking with the club sandwich question, um, and I've got to build my board game meal plan. So I've got to pick a game for breakfast. Lunch, tea, snack, dinner. He's using tea there in the afternoon tea, presumably. Uh, and dessert. So, what I've got is, I've come up with it. And this has actually been really difficult. Because what you're saying is that I need to pick my favourite games to play in a day. And I have, if, if I was to play all of my favourite games, it would take me a month. If I literally just did nothing else other than play games seven days a week... 
it would take me a month to play all of my favourite games. But I've come up with something for you. First of all, for breakfast, Concordia. The reason why I've chosen Concordia for breakfast is the rules are relatively simple and it's a really nice game and I think it's a great game. So yeah, we're going to start off the day with a game of Concordia. Hopefully everybody knows how to play and we can just get on and we can just play the game. Then at lunch, there's going to be a Steffenfeld game on the list. So Trajan. Trajan is my favourite Steffenfeld game at the moment. Marrakesh might overtake it when Marrakesh comes out, but Trajan is my favourite Steffenfeld game. So for lunch, we're going to put Concordia away. We're going to get out Trajan. Then for afternoon tea, I'm going to play Ashes Rise of the Phoenix Born. Two-player, dueling card game. I love Ashes Rise of the Phoenix Born and I don't play it enough. Then for dinner, obviously Star Trek. I mean Mage Knight. So Mage Knight for dinner. It's, it's that time we're going to get out Mage Knight and we're going to play a four, five, six hour game of Mage Knight for the main meal of the day. Uh, and then based on my experiences at uh, Bacon, we're going to end the game, end of the day with a game of Letter Jam. Because as I say, that game of Letter Jam at the end of the day uh, was just fantastic. Letter Jam, it's a fun party game, but it's very thinky and it's very clever. And I, it's, it's one of my favourite games. I absolutely love playing Letter Jam. Um, and at full disclosure, I was one of the developers on the game, but <laughs> the designer is the one who deserves all of the credit for the, for the idea itself. I just helped tweak a couple of bits. Next question is from John Underwood. John hears me uh, use the word fiddly sometimes in games, and he hears the word fiddly, which some people use to describe certain games, and he's asking me, what makes a game fiddly? Um, so in John's... Uh, in John's thoughts, um, just just bear with us a minute. I've just I've just had an idea. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to deactivate and reactivate the camera, and see if it stops the stutteringness because that's really weird and I've not I've not had that before. So I'm going to deactivate the camera. There you go. That's my backyard. Reactivate the camera. Is that any better? No, I don't think it is any better. Anyway, as we were. So for me, what makes a game fiddly? Now, when I use the term fiddly to describe a game, I am not talking about the dexterity element of the game. I'm not talking about fiddly as in tiny little pieces that you can't pick up. When I use the term fiddly, I'm talking about clumsy from a, a game design or game mechanisms point of view. Like rules that are in there just for the sake of being in there that are actually too much of an overhead that are like, oh, why, why is it like this? Um, rules that are hard to remember, rules that just require lots of bits of admin overhead. That's what I mean when it's fiddly. So, oh, when you take this action, what do you do? Well, you move a cube from there to there. Why? Because that's the rule. Oh, and then don't forget, every time you move a cube on that track, you need to increase your thing by one. Right? Okay. And then because you've increased the thing by one, go over there. Now, I'm not a big fan of chaining actions. And I'm saying that knowing full well that most Vital Lacerda games have this, but also uh, Praga Kaput Regni had it, and there are other games as well. Um, Nightmare Cathedral is a, a game which I covered on the channel recently, which also had it. Now, th this is a game, this is personal preference. Personal preference is that I'm not a big fan of when you do something in a game, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this action, and this action allows me to move my piece two spaces forward on this track, okay? Now, the first space that I've moved to has got an icon. What does that icon do? That icon allows me to do that action over there. 
So hang on a minute, in the middle of my two movements, we're going to interrupt that and I'm now going to do another action completely. So what does that action do? Well, that action is this, which does this and it moves that around over there. Okay, right. Have we done that? Yeah, we've done that. Right, now back to here. I'm now going to do my second movement. There's another icon. Oh no, you've passed a red line. Right, whenever you pass a red line, you move your marker three spaces up on that track. Okay, so hang on a minute. I'm going to interrupt my turn again to move my other marker up three spaces on that track. Oh, I've landed on an icon. What does that icon do? That icon triggers this action. Oh, so I now need to break into my turn and do a complete whole other action, which requires me to take some cards from here, which triggers another icon, which... No, that for me is clumsy, fiddly, and a bit too excessive. And I'm not a big fan of it. And the reason why I'm not a big fan of it is it just does my head in. Games should not be that hard to play. So chaining actions one after another, for me, again, I'm not trying to persuade you that it's wrong because it is just part of game design. But for me, I don't enjoy playing games like that because my brain just can't keep up with all of the things that are going on. Anyway, next question from Zodtan, and I wasn't able to answer this question. So earlier on today, I asked this question on my Slack channel and also on the Board Game Revolution Facebook group. And thank you very much to everybody for commenting because I've had so many comments about this question that it's actually helped me answer it. But also, I'm, I'm happy with the discussion as well. And the question is, are there games where I feel that the game ends quicker than my expectations. Like, I feel that, oh, there's, there's more to the game, but it's ended too early. Um, now, there are games that I enjoy playing where I feel if this game was to go on a bit longer, I would carry on enjoying it. But that doesn't mean that I think the game is too short. In fact, I've really struggled to think about this. Now, some of the comments that I've had from people, one of the big, uh, one of the most commonly thought of games when I ask this question is Lost Ruins of Arnak. And a lot of people think that Lost Ruins of Arnak is, it ends too early and there is still plenty of opportunity for more stuff to happen. Now, if you are one of those people, you are probably in the same situation that I was in when I started playing the game. In that you play five rounds of Lost Ruins of Arnak and you haven't got to the top of the temple, you've only explored twice, and you don't feel you've done very much, and then you score 60 points. Now, what you need to know is Lost Ruins of Arnak with experienced players, in five rounds, most of them will be at the top of the temple track, and most of the spaces on the board will have been explored. There isn't enough if, if you were to play a six-round game of Lost Ruins of Arnak with experienced players, there would be almost nothing to do in round six because they've achieved everything in the game that they needed to do. But when you first start playing Lost Ruins of Arnak and you are nowhere near achieving any of that, your perception is probably, this game should be an extra round because I haven't actually accomplished anything. So for me, Lost Ruins of Arnak is perfect at five rounds. It should not be six rounds. Um, Maracaibo the solo play was another one where I felt that you don't get to do enough in the, in the Maracaibo solo game. The solo AI gene moves so fast in the solo game that you don't feel that you're accomplishing very much. You might get three or four turns each round 
Whereas in a multiplayer game, if people are going slowly, you might get five or six. Now, I've played the solo game of Maracaibo over 50 times. The app for the game is absolutely fantastic. I'm now of the opinion that it is the perfect length. It shouldn't be five rounds. It should be four rounds. And the fact that Jean moves as fast as she does, it's just one of those factors that you've got to take into account. And it actually feels like it's it's the right design decision. Because if Jean was to move slower and I had more flexibility, it would be the same game. It would feel less pressured on time. Other people have said Wingspan uh, and ends too early, but there's been a number of other comments that I've had from people about games uh, which they feel ends early. Now, I can't really comment on those because a lot of the ones that were commented on, I haven't actually played. But one game that I do feel ends early, and this is one that I've mentioned already, this is Praga Kaput Regni. Now, this could be because I'm not very good at the game. It could be the Lost Runes of Arnak situation in that whenever I get to the end of a game of Praga Kaput Regni, you can go up the cathedral wall, you can go up, you go up the cathedral, there's the wall, there's building the buildings, there's the road in the middle. I think there's something else as well. There's so many different parts to Praga and you're not going to be able to do them all but you might only be able to do one to the end and maybe a little bit of something else. Maybe it's just not that, maybe it's just that I'm not very good at the game, but I always feel in a game of Praga Kaput Regni that it could last another 50% and there is still stuff to do. So in answer to your question, Praga Kaput Regni is a game for me that I feel should be 50% longer in terms of the number of actions that you take in the game, because I never really accomplish very much. In fact, if you know the game, the bottom part of the game board where you're building up the city, every game for me has ended and hardly any tiles have been placed on that city. So I'm like, are we playing it wrong? I don't know. I don't know. Right, we're almost at the end of the uh, of the questions. We've got a couple more and then we'll go to the live questions. First one from uh, Sub-Zero Joe who is asleep right now. So when you watch this, hello, uh, he's in Australia. He's, he's an architecture buff and he always loves environments that the game can immerse players in. But architecture in gaming can be interpreted in different ways. For example, the base building in Anachrony, uh, the sticker, sticker in the city in Gloomhaven, the map book in Sleeping Gods, or the town board in Tricurion, or the actual ship design from Nemesis. And he's asking me what games do I think have the best architecture design stroke aesthetics? Now, this is a question which I'm finding very difficult to answer because in games where you build something, I love I, I, any game where you get to build something. I, I just, I always have a liking for that. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because of so many computer games that I've played, like the Anno series, where you collect the wood and you collect the bricks and then you build a pub and that raises the happiness thing. Any game where you get to build stuff or craft stuff, I absolutely like. Um, but, and I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about, you mentioned Anachrony, you mentioned Gloomhaven, uh, I've not played Sleeping Gods, but you mentioned Trakirian. I don't see any um realism in terms of architecture in any of those games so in anachrony i'm not really building up my city i'm buying a tile that has a special effect on it and i'm putting it on my board that's it that for me is nothing to do with architecture um same with stickers on the gloomhaven map i'm putting a sticker on a map that's it i'm not doing anything else now in terms of frosthaven 
for those people who don't know, Frosthaven, when you put stickers on the map in Frosthaven, you're actually building the buildings. So Frosthaven has a crafting element to the game, and once you've collected enough resources, you can actually construct buildings by putting stickers on the board. But again, for me, I don't see that as an immersive architecture game. I'm just seeing it as I'm putting a sticker on a board. Um, and in Kalos, you know, b b building the buildings on the road in Kalos or expanding my house in Agricola, I'm not seeing any immersion from an architecture point of view in there. The only game that's, that, that, that comes to mind when we talk about architecture and building is Lisboa. Because Lisboa by Vita Lacerda is a historically themed board game about reconstructing the capital uh, of Lisboa after the fire, the earthquake and the floods. In 1755, was it? Um, and the game actually historically and accurately represents the building work that went on in the centre of the city. So that's the only one that I can think of. Um, am I aware that any other any games consulted architects for input in their architectural references? As far as I'm concerned, none at all. Um, but that's because, as I say, I'm not seeing any actual architecture immersion in any of those games. I, I, I am pretty sure I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that Awakened Realms did not consult an architect when designing the ship for, for Nemesis. They probably just got an artist and went, draw us some nice artwork. Now, a, any artist probably has some kind of background in architecture, maybe, um, but I don't think Awakened Realms would have consulted an architectural consultant to say, give us advice on how a spaceship should be built. I, 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 I am, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they didn't do that. And I would say it's probably the same with, with most games. Right, next question, and this is the last one before we have a short break. This is from Henning. Uh, Henning says that he sees that I've played a lot of Arkham Horror games. Um, he hasn't played any yet, but he does like the Lord of the Rings, the card game, and he's interested in the Arkham Horror card game. And the question he's got for me is, Eldritch Horror or Arkham Horror the card game, why, what's the difference? Which is better, and where should you start? Well, for a start, there's not just those two games. There are many, many Arkham Horror-themed games. If you look at Fantasy Flight Games' website, you've got Arkham Horror the board game, you've got Arkham Horror the card game, you've got Eldritch Horror, which is a board game, you've got Elder Sign, which is a dice card game, you've got Final Hour, and you've got Unfathomable, and you've probably got some more. There are multiple games in the Arkham Horror genre. It's very difficult to decide which one you should start with because they are all very different. Now, the Arkham Horror LCG, I've done multiple playthroughs of that on my channel. That is my favourite one of all of those games. But bear in mind, I've not actually played the Arkham Horror board game. I've not played the Eldritch Horror board game. I have played Elder Sign once, and it's a bit—it's a bit of a dice rolling fest and a bit like Yahtzee. Um, I've played Unfathomable, which is basically Battlestar Galactica but with a Cthulhu theme, uh, and I haven't played Final Hour. So, although I haven't played all of them, it's really difficult for me to advise you on which one you should try first, uh, because it all depends what you want. The Arkham Horror card game, the one that I play, is very involved. There's a lot of rules. It's a lot of work. Um, start with the corset. Don't bother buying any of the expansions. Just start with the corset. But you have to construct a deck. Although if you go with the starter set, there's a deck constructed for you and see if you like it. 
The Arkham Horror board game is more of a board game. There is less prep to do. You don't have to build a deck before you play the game. And I believe, and the chat will correct me if I'm wrong, but Eldritch Horror is kind of a shorter, lighter version of Arkham Horror. I think. I don't I don't fully understand. Um, but yeah, it, it's difficult for me to advise on which one you should start with. But if you've played Lord of the Rings, the card game, then you're already used to card games and you're already used to building decks beforehand. So you might want to try the Arkham Horror LCG. But if you do, please don't jump down the rabbit hole and buy everything. Just start with the core set, which is Knight of the Zealot, which is a really, really good campaign. It's three scenarios. Play with the starter decks. See if you enjoy it. And if you've got any questions, let me know. Right, that is the end of all of the questions in advance. Some of those I spent a lot of time on. But thank you very much for bearing with us. Now, there's a lot of you in the chat that have had a lot of questions, and we're going to get to those in a minute, but we are going to take a short break now, and I'm going to talk about a few things. First of all, let's talk about the Patreon campaign. So, this video, nobody's paying me to make this video, and nobody pays me to take all of the time off that I've done this afternoon to prepare for it and everything else. It's only possible thanks to the support of the Patreon campaign. So, a big thank you to all of you who are patron supporters, and if you're not a patron supporter of mine, uh, and if you want to support the channel directly, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash gaming rules um yeah so please support me on patreon and help me keep making videos like this also every live q a i do a contest and last month's contest we're pretending it's april uh was to win 50 pounds of vouchers from games law now since reaching 800 patron supporters it used to be a 25 pound voucher <coughs> excuse me uh, i have increased that to 50 pounds so every month one of you who is watching this video can win £50 of vouchers from Games Law. Games Law is the largest UK's game specialist, uh, specialist retailer. £25 of that voucher is donated from Games Law themselves, and £25 of the voucher is donated from me. Um, and to win, what you need to do is you need to click on the link, which is going to appear in the chat right now, and it will also be in the description of the video. So I, I need to remember to put this in the description of the video. And it will ask you for your name, your email address, whether you are a patron supporter or not, and for the secret word. And the secret word today is going to be Bane. Might as well be Bane because I've got the Bane miniature right here. Okay, so the secret word is Bane. And you don't have to be watching this live to enter the contest. So if you're watching this Q&A back afterwards, because 90% of my views on these Q&As come from people watching it back afterwards. If you're watching this live Q&A back afterwards, then you have until the end of this month in to, uh, to enter. Basically, you have until the next Q&A. Um, and the next Q&A, so May's Q&A is going to be Wednesday the 25th of May. Uh, so in just over three weeks' time. So you have until the 25th of May 2022 to enter the contest. So yes, click on the link, put in your name, put in your details. Um, the secret word is Bane. And good luck. And you could win £50 of vouchers. Thank you very much to Games Law for supporting uh, the contest with that. Oh, it will also be in the podcast notes. So if you're listening to this as a podcast, uh, which reminds me, I forgot to press record earlier on. It's all right. I've got a backup. Um, yeah, then then it will be in the podcast notes as well. You can enter the, the contest if you're listening to this as a podcast. The next thing I wanted to mention is UK Games Expo. So... As agreed with the UK Games Expo organisers two days ago, I am running 
a charity event at UK Games Expo. So if you are listening to this live Q&A and you are going to UK Games Expo and you're going to be there on the Saturday night, then I really would appreciate your uh, support in coming along to a charity event that I'm running. Uh, there's going to be a, a link to it, which is going to be in the chat now. And again, I'll put it in the description and we'll put it in the podcast notes. This is a live show that I'm doing on the Saturday night um, where I'm going to be playing just one with members of the audience. It's to raise money for charity. So I'm not being paid anything for doing it. Um, it was my idea. I, I, I persuaded the organisers of UK Games Expo to give up one of their rooms for an hour for one evening for me to run this uh, charity event. And they agreed to it. Um, so they're selling the tickets. The tickets are available right now. We've sold 10 tickets as of this morning. There is a there is 100 places available. Uh, I'm hoping that we sell all 100, which means we've made 500 pounds for charity. Um, but I'm also in discussion with a number of publishers uh, and Asmodee themselves that everybody attending the event, there's gonna be a little bit of a raffle. So if you buy a ticket to this event, not only do you get to see me embarrass myself uh, by trying to answer all of the just one uh, queries in a live show, but also you get a chance to win some uh, prizes as well. So yeah, if you are going to UK Games Expo and you're free on the Saturday evening, yeah, really appreciate your support. Go on, go and buy a ticket now before they uh, before they sell out. Right, we are all done. So now we're going to go on to the questions that I've been asked live. So thank you very much to everybody for bearing with us. Um, but all of the questions that you've been asking in the chat for the last hour, I'm now going to get to them and we'll see how many we've got. We've got quite a few. So probably um, it's 10 past six now. I would say if you've got any questions for me, ask them now. But other than that, in the next few minutes, we're going to stop the questions coming in because I've got enough questions to keep me going till about 6.30. Uh, I need to be finishing at about 6.30 tonight because I've got to get dinner uh, and I've got some rule book testing that I'm doing this evening. So yeah, we've got, got about another 20, 30 minutes. Right, first question from Michael. The wife has asked him what he should, what does he want for his birthday? He's debating Through the Ages and Nemo's War. Or is there anything else hot and new that you should consider. Now, I have my own thoughts on those two games. First of all, Through the Ages. Through the Ages is one of my top three games of all time. It's an absolute masterpiece of a game. I think it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. And it is one of the best games ever designed. But there is the app. And the app is so good and it is so well done and the physical board game takes so long to play, unless you're really experienced, I would recommend getting the app. So I would, I, I can't recommend Through the Ages enough. I think it's an amazing game, but I also can't recommend buying the physical game because the app is so good. Um, so yeah, yeah, get the app. As far as Nemo's War. Now, I might upset people a lot here, but although I've covered Nemo's War on the channel, and I did enjoy my games of Nemo's War, I felt that Nemo's War should have been a 90 minute game and every game I've played of it took three and a half to four hours. So for me, whilst I appreciate Nemo's War has a huge fan base and is generally regarded as one of the best solo games ever designed, for me, it's a bit long. And the reason, I mean, I don't mind long games. I've just talked about Through the Ages and I like playing Mage Knight, right? I have no problem 
with playing Mage Knight solo for four hours. But Nemo's War for me felt, and I know many, many people will disagree with me, it felt a bit too random. It felt like I was repeating the same thing over and over again for four hours and rolling lots and lots of dice. Now, Nemo's War is a very clever design and there's a lot of good work gone into it, but for me, it overstayed its welcome, was a bit too random and did feel a bit repetitive. So that's where I stand on Nemo's War. I played it three or four times and I'm really happy that I played it because I wanted to see uh, what all the fuss was about, but I can't see me ever going back to Nemo's War because of those issues. Next question is from Board Games Unwrapped. What is my favourite Transformer? Oh, now that's a good question. That is a very good question. Um, Transformers. Oh, I mean, Bumblebee's brilliant. Um, yeah, probably Bumblebee. Uh, and that might be a bit of a cop-out answer, just because Bumblebee's been in the films quite a bit. Uh, and I think Bumblebee is, is great, but I would need to actually look more. I mean, I've always liked Optimus Prime. So when I was growing up as a kid, I loved Optimus Prime because for some reason I liked trucks. I have no idea why, but as a kid, I liked trucks and Optimus Prime is a truck. So I, I definitely liked Optimus Prime. Um, but yeah, Bumblebee probably. Next question is from Sean. With shipping prices, material prices, shipping surprises, bloat, failed campaigns, etc., do I think crowdfunding will continue to work as well as it used to? That's a really interesting question, Sean. Uh, and it's not a question which I can answer easily because in the last couple of weeks, we've had some very big disturbances in the crowdfunding market with regards to um, Cool Mini or Not and also Uthea and what's happened with the Uthea, thing, the Uthea campaign. Something's got to change and something's got to give. And I don't know where we go from here. I'm also not one of these people who's going to record a video with my thoughts on the current situation. Those videos tend to get 15 to 20,000 views, but they're not the kind of videos that I make. Okay. I have my own thoughts on it, but I don't feel that I could make a video giving my own actual thoughts on it. I'm happy to talk about it in a live Q&A like this, but you're absolutely right, Sean. Material prices are going through the roof for various reasons. Um, Covid-related, war-related, uh, general price of increase-related, everything's going through the roof. Shipping, shipping is just insane right now, and we've, we've got some publishers who are literally going out of business or can't afford to ship their games. That's where we are with the shipping crisis. The shipping crisis is still going on. It's getting a little bit better, but it's still going on. Uh, bloat. That's one thing I mentioned earlier on. Do these games need to be $250 and contain 50 million expansion sets all built in? Do they need to? No, they don't. Where? Why can't we just publish base games anymore? And it's our fault. It's our fault as consumers and it's the industry's fault as a whole. We're all to blame because they are the ones that do well. Okay. If you are, if you are a games designer and you want to do well on Kickstarter, you need to have bloat, you need to have all of this extra stuff, because that's what people want. People crave it, people look for it, people back the game because of it, and that's where we are. And if you don't have that, if you just go into Kickstarter with, here's my game, um, yeah, here it is, 
Oh, expansion sets? No, there's no expansion sets. Solo mode? No, there's no solo mode. Multiple miniatures? No, 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 there's no miniatures in this game. You're not going to do well. That's just the reality of the situation. And failed campaigns. Uh, it's, again, recently we've had Uthea, which has been pulled. We've had Anunnaki. Both campaigns, which I was I was involved in. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm, I'm the bad luck charm. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of... I hope the situation changes. But I don't know how it's going to change. Because it's going to require a drastic shift of opinion. And even though we've spent the last two years in a global pandemic with a shipping crisis, there are still big games going on, on to Kickstarter. Every single week, there's another big game on Kickstarter. And it's like... I don't understand it. I don't understand how we've got to where we are. Um, Graham is asking, what were my highlights of Bacon? I've kind of answered that, Graham. Uh, definitely Bitoku and definitely Letter Jam. Um, but also, seeing certain people again for the first time in three years. One thing that's a little unusual with Bacon, uh, which is a small UK board game convention that I've been going to for about 10 years, uh, it's 15 minutes down the road. It's, it's, it's the closest convention to me. I think it's even closer than Gridcon. Um, but some of the people that go to Bacon only go to Bacon. They never go to any other UK games convention. So there are certain people at Bacon that I will only ever see at Bacon. I won't even see them at UK Games Expo. So that that's kind of a highlight as well. Um, next question from Board Games Unwrapped. Uh, what is Loki's and Thor's favourite snacks? So their favourite snacks are, uh, and other cat treats are available, but they are from a company called Webox, W-E-B-B-O-X, and they make these stick treats. They love them so much that what we do is we get one of these stick treats. It's about six inches long. We'll cut it in half and we'll give half to Loki and half to Thor. And they love it so much, it, it's gone within seconds. I mean, I swear, Loki just puts it in his mouth and swallows the whole thing down. But th they love them. They are they they absolutely love them, and they're, they're gone straight away. So, yeah, that's their favourite treats. Um, Mark is asking, when is the inaugural Roads and Boats playthrough stream? I do need to cover Roads and Boats at some point, Mark. Um, if you want to pop down tonight, we can, we can do a live stream of it tonight. No, we can't, because we're doing the rulebook test for... Um, rebuilding Seattle. Roads and Boats is a game which I've had in my collection uh, for about seven years and I don't, I've played it a few times but I've never actually covered it on the channel. So um, yeah, I definitely do want to cover Roads and Boats on the channel at some point. Going back to what John asked earlier on about fiddly, Roads and Boats is fiddly and not using the same definition that I used earlier on. Using the actual fiddly definition of Roads and Boats. Roads and Boats is very, very fiddly because it would work better as a computer game. You have so many resources and so many little things all in one hex and you have to move your units and you have to move the stuff onto them. So it's fiddly in a dexterity element um, in a physical sense, but it's also fiddly because you're like, well, this one moves to there and drops off that and then it moves to there, but has this one already moved? Oh, I can't remember. It's, it's actually really fiddly to play. Um, but yeah, it's a nice game. Graham is asking, uh, when can we have a game of Star Wars Rebellion? I tell you what, Graham, I, I will be absolutely honest with you now. I was going to reach out to you last night after the game of Dead Reckoning and say, do you want a game of Star Wars Rebellion right now? Because A, I like playing games with you. B, I want to play Star Wars Rebellion again. Um, 
C, Rick beat me last time, so I'm not going to play against him again. And D, usually, after every live stream that I've done, because my adrenaline levels are quite high, because I'm very nervous, uh, I don't know if people know this, but every time I do a live stream, I'm actually really, really nervous, which I, I, I hide, is my adrenaline levels are normally really pumping every time I've done a live stream and I struggle to get to sleep. And last night I thought, I'll tell you what, I'll ask Graham and see if he's free and ask him for a game of Star Wars Rebellion. But thanks to COVID and other various issues that I was having yesterday, straight after the live stream last night, I went for a quick lie down in bed just to rest my eyes. And then an hour later, Vicky came up and found me asleep in bed, fully dressed. So last night, for the first time, I think, ever, I literally just went to bed straight after the Dead Reckoning game and fell asleep. So, uh, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm more than happy to play Star Wars Rebellion. So for those people who don't know, on May the 4th, earlier this week, uh, me and Rick did a game of Star Wars Rebellion. And I really enjoyed it, but it was very much a learning game. And Star Wars Rebellion, when you are just learning the game and you don't even know what cards are going to come out because you don't know the game, we, we had no idea what we were doing. So yeah, I would definitely be up for a game of that, Graham. Uh, it, I don't know when. It might have to be... It won't be this week, it won't be next week. So yeah, we'll see. Maybe for my birthday. Uh, Rafa is asking, am I going to come back to play Marvel Champions? Do I still enjoy it? So yes, I, Marvel Champions is still one of my favourite games. The only reason that I haven't been playing it recently is simply haven't had the time. It's a real struggle to fit in all of the games that I want to play and all of the games that I need to cover on the channel. Um, and, and going back to what I was saying earlier on, me being out of action for a week with COVID or a week and a half has actually meant that a lot of the stuff that which I needed to get done just hasn't been done. So I've been looking at my schedule for the rest of this month and I'm booked that every, every evening pretty much for the rest of this month, I've got things booked in. I've got Super Skill Pinball coming this week. Um, I've got Lander on Thursday. I've got Carnegie on Friday, which I'm going to have to learn. So I need to do a test of that. I've got Rebuilding Seattle tonight. I've got Age of Heroes tomorrow night. And that's just this week. And while doing all of this, I've still got rulebook work in the background. And I've got the Weather Machine video to film, which is about 60 hours of work. Um, and that's just this week. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. But I haven't played Marvel Champions for a long time. I do want to get back to playing it again. I haven't picked up any of the latest expansion sets, but the playmats just arrived. Now, I, I haven't spoken about this yet, but the company that made the playmats for uh, Mage Knight and for the Arkham Horror, Power Plant Games is the company, they've sent me two of their playmats for Marvel Champions, which they are going to be selling. And I, they've arrived, and I need to get back to Power Plant Games and say, the playmats have arrived. And then I need to find a time where I can invite Rick over or anybody else and we can play Marvel Champions with the playmats. So there we go. But yeah, it will be it will be covered on the channel. And as I've mentioned before, Marvel Champions is probably in my top 10 favourite games of all time. And I would love to spend one day a week playing Marvel Champions because I've got so much content for it and I love the game. And it really uh, it's one of those really negative feelings that I have because I don't get to play it enough. Uh, Peter is asking, which Stefan Feld game would I prefer for solo play? And he hopes that we both get well soon. Oh, now, Bonfire is really good. The, I, yeah, I haven't played the solo mode of, in fact, which Stefan Feld games have solo modes? Not many of them, I don't think. But Bonfire does have a solo mode. Bonfire is a great game. 
the solo mode of Bonfire is a great game. So, yeah, that, that's my answer right now. But I am curious. Please let me know in the chat right now which other Stefan Feld games have solo modes. Because I don't know which ones do have solo modes other than Bonfire. So my default answer is Bonfire. Uh, next question is... Oh, I missed one from Lord of the Board. Lord of the Board's here. Thank you very much. Um, Lord of the Board, great videos. YouTube channel, go and check it out. It's called Lord of the Board. Just just look that up. Uh, have I played Crescent Moon anymore? No, I haven't since doing the video. And have I played Root? No, I haven't played Root. Uh, both games seem to be the spirits of coin games. Absolutely right. So um, coin games, for those people who don't know, are counterinsurgency games. Almost all of them are based on historical uh, things that have happened. Um, so there's the, the Vietnam one. There's the... Afghanistan won. There's a few of them. I can't remember. There's a French Revolution one, I think. I can't, can't remember. But they are. But the, the, the whole crux of the game is that they are asymmetric games where each player has special rules that only apply to them. We're not talking just individual player powers. We're talking, I'm actually playing the game in a very different way. The way I get points is different from you. The things that I do is different from you. And Crescent Moon and Root, as Lord of the Board says, they are, in essence... They capture the spirit of coin games, which is asymmetric factions. Uh, I haven't played Root. I haven't played Crescent Moon uh, anymore, other than uh, what I've covered it on the channel. Now, I've covered Crescent Moon on the channel. I've done a playthrough video. I've done a tutorial video for it. And I've done a playthrough video for it. And I've played it probably four times. But, and I'm not saying Crescent Moon isn't a good game, but Crescent Moon is not for me. And that isn't because of the game itself. But having played Crescent Moon, I'm actually not a big fan of these asymmetric games, I have to say. And that is down to pure personal preference. As asymmetric games go, Crescent Moon is a good one. I have spoken to other people who've played Root, they've played Crescent Moon, they've played coin games, and they think Crescent Moon is a really good game. But for me, I struggle to get my head round the fact that different players are scoring points in different ways and have special rules that only apply to them. What it does to my brain when I'm playing the game is I can't keep track of it. I'm unable to remember, oh yeah, you actually get points for being in an hex which has a castle, whereas you get points for doing that. And oh, and you get points for that. I just can't keep all of that in my brain at the same time. So I've realised that after playing Crescent Moon four times, whilst I think it's a good game, it's a very clever design, and it works very well, it is not a game which I will personally seek out to play because I'm unable to cope with it. So that, that that's where I am with it. Um, Brendan is asking, is a coin game potentially getting on the docket sometime soon? So following on from that conversation... Yeah, I don't know, because after what I've just said about asymmetric games, I do kind of want to cover a coin game on the channel, but I am fully aware that the first time I play a coin game, I'm going to struggle. And it's not going to be a very good game, because I am not going to be knowing what any of the other people will do. i tell you what I could do. We could host a coin game on the channel with me not playing. So literally, I could host a game and have four other people playing the game 
with me providing commentary. If four of my Patreon supporters want to do that, that's what we can do. Because that way, a coin game will get covered on the channel. I will actually enjoy it more than if I was playing. Now, that might sound really unusual, but my problem with playing a coin game on the channel is that I know I won't enjoy it because it will make me really uncomfortable for the entire game that I don't know what's going on and it will just do my head in. But if we host a game with four people playing the game and me not playing, then I will enjoy watching that and I will enjoy providing the commentary. So there's the plan. At some point, we will do a coin game, but I won't actually play it. Right, next question. Um, I skipped forward a bit. Yes. Then the Steffenfeld one. Have we got any answers to the Steffenfeld um, question? I don't think we have. We got, we got mentions about a bonfire. Castles of Burgundy 2019 has a solo mode. Right. Castles of Burgundy is one of my favourite games of all time. So, Castles of Burgundy, I don't have the 2019 version, but apparently there is a solo mode. Um, right. Okay. Next. Um... Da, 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 da. Have I played Paladin's Oath? So, um, this is a question from Jeff. Thank you very much, Jeff, for your question. Paladin's Oath is a game, it's a computer game. It is available on Steam right now, and he's basically Mage Knight. Uh, for, for legal reasons, it's not called Mage Knight, but in essence, it is pretty much Mage Knight, the game. Um, I have a copy of it, but it's, yeah, I loaded it up to see if it worked, but then I just didn't get round to uh, learning it. Now, you might think, well, hang on a minute, if it's just the same as Mage Knight, why do I need to learn it? But I remember loading it up and playing it for about 10 minutes, thinking, oh, well, if this is just Mage Knight, I should be able to learn this. And actually I went, oh no, I'm gonna have to put in a bit of time on this. So yeah, I have, uh, I have the game, uh, the designer of the game, the developer of the game kindly sent me a key for it, but I haven't actually got round to, to looking at it yet. But if you are interested in a, PC version of Mage Knight that isn't called Mage Knight. It's Paladin's Oath. It is there on Steam right now. Um, next question from Trishul. How many nations have I played in Imperium Classics and Legends? And have I got any favourites? I haven't actually gone back to Imperium Classics since I covered it on the channel. So I don't have any favourites. How many different ones have I played? Probably only about four of them. So not enough for me to say which ones my favourites are. Um, I did like the way that the Arthurians worked thematically. I loved the way that the, you, you had the going on quests and you had the Grail and you had Excalibur and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, that's one of the strong points of the game is the way that each of the different uh, nations in the game, the way that it works is actually quite thematic. And I really like the way that uh, both Nigel and David, the two designers of the game, managed to capture so much theme in just the mechanics of a card game, uh, mechanisms of a card game. So yeah, but no, I haven't, I haven't played it for a while. I haven't gone back to it uh, since covering it on the channel. So no, no favorites. As for recommendations to start with, you absolutely 100% should start with the ones in the back of the rule book, which have a one star, maybe two. Whatever you do, do not for your first or second or third game, play with anything which is three stars and above. And that might sound a bit like I'm being a bit strict, but Imperium Classics or Imperium, uh, what's the other one? Legends. There's a learning curve to the game and the game is actually quite complex for a card game. And 
each of the decks works in a very specific way. And if you jump in at the deep end and try playing one of the three, four, five star decks, you're going to struggle. So start with the one and the two stars, definitely. Uh, next question, Mark, if I could be a gold medalist at an Olympic sport, which one would it be? Well, I'm not a sports person. Um, I don't know what Olympic sports there are. Let me have a look. Um, I'm just going to pull up a list on screen right now. A list of Olympic sports. List of Olympic sports. Uh, the 42 Olympic disciplines. No, Olympic sports list. Here we go. Right. Let's have a look through the list and see which one of them I like. Oh, archery is an Olympic sport. That would be cool. Um, BMX freestyle. Beach volleyball, canoe kayaking, cross-country skiing, equestrian fencing, football, no, judo, karate, no, ice hockey, no. What's futsal? Never heard of that. Um, sailing, swimming, shooting, skateboarding, ski jumping. Oh, I don't know. It's a good question. Table tennis. That would be cool. So, out of all of these... This is a good question for the Slack channel. If you want to post this on the Slack channel, this is quite a fun question. I'm probably going to say archery. Just because I grew up playing D&D and I like characters with bows. And, and me and Vicky did some archery when we went to uh, Centre Parks once. So yeah, archery. There we go. Um, Anna says, does Patreon support need to be done once yearly? In other words, does it have a limited length of time or is it valid? Uh, will you need to renew in a year? Does that mean, Anna, that you've just joined as a Patreon supporter? Um, I haven't got a message through. So the way that I do my Patreon campaign is it's a monthly subscription, which you can cancel at any time. I have been considering turning on the yearly subscription, but um, because if I turn on yearly subscriptions, apparently that means I will get more money out of it. The stats have been shown that if you turn on yearly subscriptions, you will actually make more money out of it. But personally... I like the monthly subscription model. What I what I like is the fact that anybody who wants to support me on Patreon can support me right now. And then in two months time, if they lose their job or anything like that, they can cancel their Patreon. For me, I see Patreon a little bit like Amazon Prime, Netflix or anything else. It's a monthly subscription and you can cancel it whenever you need to. And I, it feels more comfortable for me knowing that any of my patron supporters can cancel at any time whenever whenever they need to rather than pay for the year up front now i know some of my patron supporters uh, are, are never going to stop their support for me and for them the yearly subscription model might work better because i think you get like a five percent discount or something like that um but no if, if you join me on patreon then it is a monthly subscription and you don't have to renew it. It just it just constantly rolls each month. You have to update your card whenever you change your card details. But other than that, uh, it just is a rolling subscription every month. But yeah, thank you very much, Anna, if you are supporting me on Patreon. And the final question for today is... Oh, it is from Mark, which is, am I looking into doing yearly Patreon memberships? It's on the list to look at. But as I say, there's there's pros and cons for doing it. Uh, and I'm and I'm not sure. So that is it. Did we have if we didn't have any other questions? Yeah, curling is the other one because having watched curling in the recent Winter Olympics, 
that was fantastic. I really enjoyed watching curling, but also for some reason I like crown green bowls. Um, you know, old men throwing these bowls across a, a, a running after them and shouting obscenities or whatever they shout after them. They shout strange things in a strange, strange language. I really like crown green bowls for some reason. I find it find it fascinating. Um, but we're all done. So yeah, we've 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 done all of the questions from the chat. I'm just going to have a look now. Um, Andy Grant is here saying that that is the best way to prep for a first coin game. If you're suggesting me doing that stream where four people play it, then yeah, let, let, let's do it. Um, is Deadly Discs an Olympic sport, says Kabuki Kid. <laughs> Deadly Discs. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Uh, gnome Archery. Yeah, we definitely need Gnome Archery. Very good. No, Gnome put in the chat, Archery is awesome, but it comes up as Gnome Archery. Yeah, I like that. Um, I think we're all done. Um, and it is 6.30. So yes, I, I do I, I do look hungry. Um, I am fading a bit, as I say, still recovering from COVID and still getting very exhausted with these things. But before I disappear, um, nobody's asked about the assistant from Weather Machine, which I'm very disappointed about. Uh, for sale, Automarama. I played, I played this at, um, at Bacon. Um, I really like for sale. And this is a version of For Sale which has the advisors in, which is an extra round, which was weird, but it worked quite well. So that, that was nice. Super Skill Pinball is going to get covered on the channel. This is the Star Trek version. This is going to get covered on the channel on Wednesday. Uh, I've already done a stream for Patreon supporters where I learned how to use the Trouble with Tribbles uh, channel. Uh, and yeah, we're going to wrap things up now. Thank you very much to Vicky, who's probably still sat outside, but thank you very much for doing all of the admin. And... If you are a patron supporter on the Slack channel, tonight at somewhere around 8 o'clock, me, Jill and Mark are going to be doing a playthrough, which is going to be a patron-only playthrough, of Rebuilding Seattle. Rebuilding Seattle is a new game that's coming out from WizKids later this year. Um, I've helped with the rulebook for it, and we're actually doing a rulebook test tonight. Um, it's a private video. It will only be for Patreon supporters. The game is not even on BGG yet, so you've probably never heard about this game. Um, but yeah, that's what's going to be happening tonight. I will post a link to the Slack channel tonight at 8 o'clock, uh, if anybody's interested in joining us for that. Um, but yeah, that's that's happening tonight. Other than that, we're all done. Thank you very much. This was awesome. Don't forget to enter the contest. One more, one more quick reminder of the contest. If you've been watching this video now and you haven't entered the contest, please do so. Um, to give you an idea of the number of people that enter the contest, these live Q&As normally have about 1,000 views. And the number of people that enter the contest each month is about 100. So we only normally get about 100 people entering the contest each month. So yes, if you're watching this video right now, go and enter the contest. Uh, Vicky will put a link in the Slack, uh, in, the, in the chat now. And as I say, it's in the description. It's also in the podcast notes as well. But please enter the contest. £50 worth of vouchers from Games Law, £25 donated from Games Law themselves, £25 uh, donated from me. And good luck to everybody. And again, a big thank you very much to all, a uh, big thank you to all of my Patreon supporters for making these videos useful. I do enjoy doing these live Q&As, but it is quite a lot of work uh, organising it, preparing for it and everything else. And normally I take time off work to do them. Obviously I've delayed this because of Covid, uh, so I've actually taken time out of the weekend when we should have been doing house jobs. Um, it's more enjoyable doing these than it is doing house jobs, but it does mean that the house jobs still need doing. So yeah, thank you very much for your support. Um, you should enter, even if you're in the US, you should enter because we do have a way uh, of getting you the prizes. 
just about. Uh, and the fact that we've now upped it to £50, before when it was £25, it sometimes wasn't worth it because of postage, but now because it's £50. But Kabuki Kid, thank you very much for appearing in the live streams. And I think you were in the Dead Reckoning stream last night. Um, so yeah, any anybody who watches these live streams and supports me just by, by being here and commenting is very much appreciated. But I'm going to disappear now before I ramble too much. Thanks very much for watching. Take care. I'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.